This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. It's so helpful to have models of the Christian life. And it's one of the reasons why I love to read Christian biographies, Christian autobiographies, because it's so helpful to see the Christian life lived out in the example of someone else's life. And so I love to read Christian biographies, autobiographies, and it's also very important to look at models of the Christian life lived out in in Scripture, obviously. We're going to do that today. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at, on Father's Day, of a model of godly manhood. And so I especially want to talk to men today, but as you'll see... Most, of, if not all, of these principles are really transferable to women and to all Christians as, as well. But today we want to especially focus on, on dads and on men. And we, we see a model of godly manhood in the life of someone that Paul talks about in Colossians. And he's, he's a man that you may have never heard of if you've not read the book of Colossians. His name was Epaphras, and when we, we kind of didn't deal with a couple of these texts earlier in the first chapter of Colossians, so he talks about him as he opens the letter, and then in chapter 4, he talks about Epaphras again as he's sort of signing off. And, and, and we're going to look at both of those texts, and together what we really see is a model of godly manhood. Let's look first of all at Colossians 1, and let's look there uh, beginning at verse 5. Paul is talking about the fact that the gospel, the hope of the gospel, has come to these people in Colossae, and he, and he says there, "...the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you." Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, Paul is once again going to talk about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Let's pray. Father, today, as we we think about a model of what it means to to live out the Christian life. Father, we pray that you would use it to speak to us. We pray that you would use um, principles 
from a life that you redeemed and that you had formed and shaped for your glory and that you would use it to form and to shape us as Christians and especially those of us who are fathers on this day. Lord, so speak through your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand that none of these qualities are things that we can do on our own. They're things that we must get from you. We must depend upon you, our heavenly Father, to be the source of our strength and a shaper of our character in all of these areas. And so, Lord, speak to us now through your word and the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the Second World War, in a secret lab in a remote part of New Mexico, scientists were working on the first atomic bomb. And by the spring of 1945, it was becoming obvious as the horrific casualty counts mounted in the war against Japan in the Pacific. Um, It became obvious, really, that America faced one of two choices. Either we were going to have to invade Japan itself to end the war, which would have produced Armageddon-like casualties on both sides, or an atomic bomb could be dropped in the hopes that the shock of it, the sheer shock of it, would induce the Japanese to surrender. And of course, President Truman opted for the the latter. But before the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was a test explosion of one in the desert of New Mexico. It was on July, 4, uh, July 16, 1945. And that day, as that first mushroom cloud ever rose over the desert of New Mexico in a ball of fire, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was the, the lead scientist in the development of the atomic bomb, as he stood there, he, Oppenheimer trembled at the, the terrifying power that was now in the hands of human beings, human beings like, like him. And as he stood there watching this explosion, he trembled at the thought of it all, and he quoted from an ancient Indian text the words, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Just awed by the power that was now in the hands of, of human beings with this, with this bomb. You know, fathers had been given really a, an awesome, terrifying power as well to, um, to give life, to take it away, and to, uh, to, 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 to build up the lives of children or to, to tear them down, to, uh, to, to, to form them uh, and to help to, uh, to, to launch them into healthy adulthood or, or really to, to destroy their lives. It's, it's really an awesome thing to contemplate the, the power of fatherhood. This year I'm reading through the Bible and um, in my one-year Bible plan this morning, my Old Testament reading was in the book of 
First Kings. And as I was reading in First Kings this morning, I was, I was struck by one of the verses in, in the 15th chapter of First of Kings, the 16th chapter of First Kings. And you see this pattern again and again when God's Word talks about the influence of fathers on these various kings. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father. Now, if you're familiar with with 1 Kings, you see this pattern over and over and over again that evil fathers tend to produce sons who would walk in their very ways. And conversely, the good kings who would tend to produce children and their sons would grow up and, and more than likely would emulate them and be good, good leaders and good kings. You just see this, this power of fatherhood and the, the likelihood that children will end up walking in the ways of their fathers. This, this plays out again and again in God's Word. It's, it's really an awesome power when you think about the power of fatherhood. And if we're going to be fathers who are going to build up the lives of our children and help their character be shaped in the ways of godliness, then dads, we need models. It's so helpful to see these principles played out in another life, a life that's worthy of emulation. And we see that in the example of this man, Epaphras. And so we're going to look at at both of these texts this morning and see some principles that we can apply to our lives that that together, when we put the pieces together from chapter 1 and chapter 4, what we see is really the pieces coming together to form a model of what godly manhood is all about. What do we see in the life of Epaphras? First of all, we see that he was bold for the gospel of Christ. Let's go back and look at these opening verses of the letter to the Colossians. Paul says there, beginning in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. <clears throat> of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Now notice that in both in verses 5 and in verse 6, that Paul says that these people in Colossae have heard the gospel uses that word in verse 5 and again in verse 6. They have heard the gospel. How did they hear the gospel? Someone had to tell them the gospel. Who told the people in Colossae the good news of the gospel? Not Paul. It was Epaphras who shared the gospel 
with them. Let's kind of review a little bit. We talked about this when we began this series on Colossians, but we talked about the fact that the two cities of Colossae and Ephesus are about 100 miles apart. It's what would now be Turkey. In the first century, it was the Roman province of Asia. But Colossae and Ephesus, about 100 miles apart, the Apostle Paul spent a, a good deal of time in the city of Ephesus, ministering there. And, and one day, in God's providence, his path crossed with a, a Colossian man named Epaphras. We don't know why, but for some reason, Epaphras was, was visiting the city of Ephesus, and he comes in contact with Paul, and he himself hears the gospel He's saved, his life is radically changed, and God gives him a burden to go back to his hometown of Colossae and to speak the gospel to his family members, to his friends, and it's through his witness that the church at Colossae is birthed. There would be no letter to the Colossians. There would be no church at Colossae for Paul to write to had it not been for the bold witness of Epaphras and sharing the gospel with his family members and his friends. Think about what that city would have been like had he not done that. Just another pagan city with no gospel witness whatsoever. Think about the lives that were changed because this one man, was bold with the gospel. Think about the lives of men and women and boys and girls. Think about the, the families that were impacted by the gospel and then future generations as they raised godly children. So much was different because Epaphras was bold with the gospel. In Frank Capra's film, It's a Wonderful Life, it tells the story of a, a man named George Bailey who was attempting to take his own life. He's on the verge of suicide. And if you've seen this film, it comes on every Christmas, but you know that, uh, that his life is preserved because God sends an angel to prevent him from taking his own life. And the angel restores George Bailey's hope and faith by showing him what life would have been like in his hometown had he never been born. And so George Bailey is able to see, he's able to see lives that, 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 that he was able to influence for good, that things that he just took for granted, but lives that he had been able to impact. He, the, the angel also shows him um, bad things that, that would have happened had, his, had he never existed, had George Bailey never existed. And, and his hope is restored um, through that. He sees how, how different things would have been without his life. How different would the city of Colossae have been without the influence of this one man, Epaphras, and, and, his, and his boldness to speak the words of the gospel? Men... It is not a very manly thing not to share the gospel with people. Not to share the hope that you have. Real godly manliness is, is being bold with the gospel. 
having enough love for other people to want to help them by sharing with them the hope that you have. It's not manly to be ashamed of the gospel. It's cowardly to be ashamed of the gospel. A godly man is bold with the gospel. And we see that in the life of Epaphras. We also see that he not only was bold with the gospel, but that he, he taught the word. Not only do, do these people hear about the gospel through Epaphras, but what is it, else does it say here in verse 7? He says in verse 7, just as you learned it, just as you learned it from Epaphras. In other words, Epaphras not only announced the good news of the gospel to these people, but he taught them the implications of the good news. He not only announced the good news, but he opened up the treasure chest of the gospel, and he took out the gems and the pearls and the diamonds of the gospel, and he, and he taught the people there the implications of those things and how the gospel could be lived out in their everyday lives. Fathers, we have a responsibility to do this in our own homes. The instruction of our children in spiritual things is not something that is to be dumped into the lap of mom. This is something that husbands and wives are to share in as a team in the instruction of their children. And while you know, we can be very thankful for wonderful uh, student ministries, youth ministries, children's ministries in the local church, the instruction of children in the gospel, in the Christian life, begins in the home. It is, it, is, it is fathers and mothers that are responsible for sharing the gospel with their children and discipling their children, teaching them. And we see that Epaphras teaches these people in Colossae. There's a third characteristic that we see about him, and that is that he was, he was loving. He was a loving man. Let's look again at what Paul says about him in verse 7. Notice that he refers to him as Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Our beloved fellow servant. You can really tell by the language in both chapter 1 and in chapter 4 the affection that Paul and the other missionary team members had for Epaphras. They really loved him. You can just tell that in, in the way that he, that he speaks. Well, what was it that made them love Epaphras so much as a, as a teammate in Christ? No doubt it was because Epaphras was such a loving person himself. And where did that come from? Uh, that came because Epaphras understood how much he had been loved by God. The, the gospel had gotten down deep in Epaphras, and, and he knew how much he had been loved by the Lord. Just like Paul in, 
in Galatians 2 and, and verse 20, when, when, he, when, he, when he says there that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not just that he loved people and gave himself for people. Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, it had become personal for Paul as it was for Epaphras. This is not head knowledge. It's not just you know, intellectual uh, theory. These men have experienced the love of God in Christ. The great pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, there's all the difference in the world between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. In other words, people can tell you that honey is sweet and you can believe in your head that honey is sweet, but it's not until you taste honey that you really understand its sweetness. You have to taste it. That's the way it is in a relationship with God. Psalm 34, 8 says what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pop it up on screen there. Trust me. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's got to become a personal transaction, right? This is, it's not just a matter of believing the right things about God. It's experiencing a relationship with Him. Do you have that today? Fathers, do you have that today? We, we can't do this. We can't do anything that we're talking about without it. What else do we see about Epaphras? He was faithful. He was faithful. Let's look again at verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved faithful servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ. The word there means trustworthy it means that Epaphras was not someone who was going to bail on his responsibilities when the going got tough. It means that, as my father often said to me when I was growing up, that his word was his bond. Faithful. What else do we see about him? Selfless. He was selfless. What, look at verse 7 again. Paul says of him, he is a faithful minister of Christ, what? On your behalf. On your behalf. He's not in this for himself. He's in it for you. He's in it for the glory of God. Let's look at uh, chapter 4 and verse 13. Paul says there of Epaphras, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard, what? For you, and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so, Epaphras was a man who would kiss selfish ambition goodbye. He wasn't interested in making a name for himself. He wasn't interested in building his own kingdom. Epaphras was in it for their good. He was in it for the glory of God. His creed would have been Psalm 15, 
1, which says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. There's a word here for fathers. Because when we think about selfish ambition, how many dads have sacrificed their children on the altar of their selfish ambition. Now again, this morning, in God's providence, as I was reading the book of 1 Kings, I was struck by this. Um, it's in 1 Kings 16.34, and it's talking about the building of the city of Jericho. This blew me away when I saw this this morning. It says, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. Listen to this. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. This man built the foundation of Jericho, and he built the gates of Jericho, but at a terrible cost, at the cost of his own children. Fathers, if you have children in the home, listen, the time that we have with them is going to be gone before we know it. It goes so quickly. I can't imagine how the time has flown with my own children. It seems like they were, I was, seems like I was in the delivery room just a few days ago when they were being born. It's, it's incredible how this happens. And listen, we get, uh, we get one shot, you know, to pour into them. Life can get really busy for fathers, it, it, and we, but we have to keep a balance. We have to keep our lives balanced so that, you know, our children are not being uh, sacrificed at the altar of our own career ambition. You know, a lot of times we hear about, well, you know, I, I don't have a lot of... Uh, Quantity time, but I'll make it quality time. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered really that there is no quality time without quantity time. <laughs> because it's, when, it's during, you have to spend enough time so that the teachable moments come up, so that the trust and the relationship is built so that your instruction can mean something. And so we have to be so so in, intent as as dads, don't we? Um, that you know, as 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 much as you know, we want to succeed and um, our vocations and and all of that. We've got to have our priorities right, which we're going to talk about in a few moments. What else do we see about Epaphras here? Uh, servanthood. He was servant-hearted um, in chapter four and, and and verse twelve. What does it say about him there? It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. And the Greek word there is, is doulos. It mean, it literally, it means slave. Epaphras had once been a slave of sin, and he had been redeemed to be a joyful slave of Christ, which, of course, is what brings true freedom. Jesus said, the greatest among you is the one who serves 
He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Men were called to be servants. Even as we're called to be leaders in our home, we're called to be servant leaders. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible tells us about how to, how to love our wives. It says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So how did Christ love the church? He sacrificed himself for the church. He, he served the church. And so, men, uh, our leadership in the home is carried out in the context of being a servant. If, if we think of ourselves in the home as some kind of an autocrat throwing around our weight, if we think of ourselves as the, the boss of our wives or whatever, you know, we just don't get it. We don't get what God's Word is saying. Yes, we're assigned the responsibility to lead, but how do we do that? We do that as a, as a servant, serving our wives and children, sacrificing, putting them ahead of ourselves as Christ put our interest before anything else and gave himself for us. Servanthood. And we, we see that in the life of Epaphras. What else do we see? He had his priorities right. And we see those priorities here in chapter 4 and verse 12. What was the real burden of his heart as he prayed for them? It was that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. We saw last week in chapter 1 and verse 28 that the passion of Paul's ministry was that they would be mature. In Christ, And we see that here in Epaphras, that as he prays for these people, the focus of his prayers, the priority of his prayers, was, was that these people, his children in the faith, would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Fathers, that is to be our priority in the lives of our children. Not that they would make loads of money. Not that they would be a success on the athletic field or go to the right college or be an academic success, although there's nothing wrong with any of those things that I just mentioned. But if any of those things are at the top of your wish list, your prayer list for them, your priorities are messed up. The priority that we should have as we pray for them and as we pour our lives into them is that they would stand mature in Christ. That we would raise up godly men and women who are all out for Jesus. And they have to see that in us first by example because our words will mean nothing if they don't see it lived out as an example before them. Epaphras had his priorities right, and then he was a prayer warrior. He was a prayer warrior. What, what does it say about him here in, in, in verse 12 again? Paul says to his readers at Colossae that Epaphras, who is one of you, is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. You see, day after day... 
in Rome. And Epaphras at this point is with Paul in Rome. Paul is in prison in Rome as he writes these words. Epaphras is with Paul in Rome. And so he can't be with these people in Colossae that he loves. But what can he do? He can pray for them. And he does that faithfully. Paul says he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. You get the feeling that day after day in that prison cell that Paul heard Epaphras lift these people to the Lord and intercede for them. I mentioned the power of Christian biography and autobiography earlier. One of my heroes in the faith is a missionary named John Patton. He was from Scotland, lived in the 1800s. And he was, um, he was a missionary to Vanuatu, which is a chain of islands in the South Pacific. And before John Patton went to Vanuatu, the only missionaries that had gone there had been killed and actually they had been cannibalized. That's what had happened to all the previous missionaries that had gone. But at the risk of his life, Patton went. And his own life was threatened many times. Uh, his, uh, his first wife uh, died of disease while they were there, had an infant child that passed away. Lots and lots of struggle, lots of pain, but he persevered and eventually John Patton saw this whole chain of islands come to Christ. It was a remarkable thing. What produces a man like that? What produces a John Patton? Well, one of the things that produced a John Patton is John Patton's father. And as I read this autobiography and I read about this man's father. He's writing this autobiography as an older man. And he's looking back at the influence of his dad. And especially the prayers of his dad. Just listen to this and what he says about the prayers of his father. How much my father's prayers impress me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees, and, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, and there were 11 kids in his family, they are all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world and for every personal and domestic need. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned how to know and love him as our divine friend. And then one of the most powerful parts of the book occurs when Patton, is, is, as a young man, is leaving home. And he raised up in a little country village in Scotland. And he's leaving home to go to seminary in, in Glasgow. And they had to, had to walk it to the, um, to the train station. And he tells about walking, that, taking that, that final walk um, with his dad. He's a young man leaving home, being launched out on his own. Listen to what he says. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence. And then solemnly 
and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I looked back and saw him still standing where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat and bidding him goodbye, I rounded the corner and out of sight. But my heart was too full to carry, uh, to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. His heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched him through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. And then, hastening on my way, bowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father. What produces such a father? It's because his life was linked to the heavenly father, right? Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we come before you humbly, knowing that we can never be the, the godly men that you call us to be unless we humbly depend upon you for, for daily grace and help and strength. Father, help us to be that kind of, those kinds of men, dependent men. Men who are humbly leaning upon you moment by moment for your strength, for your grace. Leaning upon you through, through prayer, through your word. Just constantly, constantly depending upon you, abiding in you. Just as a, a branch uh, abides in the vine and, and draws its draws its life from the vine. Lord, may we do that as, as men and as believers to realize that we can't do this on our own, that we have to depend humbly upon you. So we just continue to pray. I would invite you today as a man, as a woman, as a boy or a girl, if you don't have that kind of relationship where you know God personally, he invites you into that today. And, and, and he, He's made it possible. He's made it possible through the gift of His Son for you. We're all sinners. Our sins separate us from a holy God who hates sin and must judge sin. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ on the cross took the judgment that we deserved. Took our sins upon Himself. Paid the price for them rose from the dead so that anyone who turns to Him and trusts in Him 
can have eternal life and a relationship with God. God invites you into that relationship today. And you enter it by turning from trying to do life on your own and turning to Jesus. Trusting in Him, in His finished work. Would you do that today? Would you turn to Christ and trust Him today? Jesus tells us that when we do that, we're to acknowledge Him, confess Him openly before others. In a few moments, we're going to have a song of invitation. I want to give you the opportunity to do that very thing. It's going to be right here at the front. Just come come and share with me as others stand. They'll gladly make way for you. Slip out from where you are. Just say, I've decided to follow Jesus. I need Christ in my life. I want to live, do life with Him. We want to invite you to come today. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, we want to invite you to come. Or if you've got a need for prayer, the altar is open for you. People here can pray for you. You come. So, Father, we give you now this time of invitation. Lord, would you have your way right now in hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.